0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. Robert Frost said it best, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, Creating a story or a poem is as much about discovery as anything else. Listen in as these writers, Richard Froud, Joanna Ruoco, and Robin Black, discuss doubt, uncertainty, errancy, and digression.
1: Welcome to the Bewilderment Salon. Our lovely panel of authors, we have Richard Froud, Robin Black, Joanna Rocco. Let's give it up for these guys. I'm not going to read their bios, and the reason why is because you can read them on the back of the books that are at the back of the tent. Yes? All right. Good. I'll hand it over to
2: Joanna.
3: Hi. (laughs) Uh, I'm Joanna Rocco. Thanks uh, to everyone for coming to this uh, salon on getting lost on... Uh, bewilderment as part of the writing process, and maybe inevitably part of our writing products. Um, happy to be here with Richard Froud and Robin Black, and we're going to begin by reading from our prepared remarks. And so, um, I'm going to read to you a little bit from my uh, prepared remarks on on the topic of bewilderment, and then we're gonna um, we're gonna move uh, move along to Richard Froud and then Robin and uh, Then we'll have a general conversation. Calling
2: on people. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So think of some questions. (laughs) Because
4: I know your name.
3: All right. um, I'm going to start with John Keats. Because why not? John Keats wrote in a letter, "Poetical character has no self; it is everything and nothing." This idea that the writer is properly selfless provides one aperture into thinking about the value of not knowing, even perhaps as a function of not being. How can we cultivate selflessness as writers, and what poetics and ethics of writing might result? The poetical character is, writes Keats, everything and nothing. When do we experience the loss of self as connection with everything else? The ability to inhabit multiple subject positions, the condition of radical empathy? When do we experience the loss of self as disconnection, annihilating distance, nothingness, absolute alterity, a glimpse into the abyss? Are these experiences two sides of the same coin? When we write, do we always pass, in a sense, out of person, pass from first to third person, so that, as Blanchot writes, what happens to me happens to no one? is anonymous as far as it concerns me, repeats itself in an infinite dispersal. Of course, we all have to be in the day-to-day someone until we don't. We are all right now living writers, materialized in particular bodies, made socially legible or illegible through constructed categories. To cultivate selflessness is not to deny our particularities, to deny that we belong to this or that category, but to explore the incoherency that threaten these categories with collapse. Uh, I don't usually begin discussions of writing by talking about uh, incoherency. I teach undergraduate writing workshops at Wake Forest University that focus on craft elements, how to build stories out of component parts. Uh, We begin by talking about character, voice, uh, dialogue, image, action, scene, plot, Um, time and place, and over the course of the semester, the students write in response to prompts that require them to try out different techniques. The premise is that even as we question our notions of what a story is and can be, even as we allow for mystery and the unknowable in our process and our products, we're moving toward a certain kind of mastery, and that's a good thing. Uh, By studying the stories of other writers, by taking the sentence seriously as the base unit of our artistic practice, by considering the effects of our compositional choices, we become more effective literary technicians in command of our material, capable of making stories that do what we want them to do in the world. I don't think this is a false premise. it's just that, as with most premises, it's it's a reductive one, helpful for teaching when the premium is on skills and outcomes and when students understandably want guidance on character development rather than gnomic utterances on the value of dwelling in the space of paradox. Um, I'm excited about this salon, though, because I want to be part of a conversation that explores the fluxing state of bewilderment and uncertainty, um, not as a problem to be solved, a failing to be overcome, but precisely as what enables our work as writers. The challenge then is not or not only to know ourselves, to know our characters, to speak our truth, to find our voice, but to allow ourselves to turn away again and again from what we know, so as to glance toward everything and nothing else. Lynn Heginian's essays have been helpful to me in privileging the question rather than the answer in my fiction. Heginian doesn't jettison knowing, intention, or technique, but neither does she want to fix, buy, and solve, or close a text as a writer or a reader. She writes, quote, the act of writing is a process of improvisation within a framework, a form of intention. The emphasis in poetry is on the moving rather than on the places. I like moving as a metaphor because movement is never over. It continues. It's defined by non-arrival and open to deflection. Even something as simple as walking down the street involves hundreds of swerves and counterswerves. Walking is falling again and again interrupted by the body's provisional control. As Laurie Anderson tells us, we're walking and falling at the same time. Forward motion depends on lateral deviations, turns to the side, pauses, delays, ruptures, incoherencies, tiny plummets. If we think about this too much, we're liable to trip. If we don't think about it at all, we'll get to where we always knew we were going, self-assured and sure-footed, having missed the moments when we swung minutely in unexpected directions, when different trajectories and angles of perception revealed themselves. Writers such as the Surrealists and the Situationists developed games and procedures in an attempt to free themselves from the tyranny of reason, the constraints of the critical intellect, the tired, highly conventionalized ways of thinking and writing that they saw as shackles on the human imagination. Uh, These games and procedures, which put the writer in touch with the dreaming mind, which emphasize chance and nonsense, can be diverting, diversion meaning detour and also entertainment. Um, And I often have my students experiment with them to see what happens when they allow the language that exists already all around them um, access at any and every point as though relinquishing the intermediary of their individual consciousnesses. One situationist practice, the derive, literally drifting, encourages pedestrians to jolt themselves into a new awareness of the urban landscape to, this is a quote from Guy Debord, drop their relations, their work and leisure activities and all their other usual motives for movement and action and let themselves be drawn by the attractions of the terrain and the encounters they find there. End quote. When you derive through a city, lost and not lost are no longer viable distinctions. You're coming into contact again and again with the world as it also comes toward you. I've gone on Reeves, and for me, there's a connection between the process of physically drifting through a landscape and mentally drifting within or away from the space of particular writing projects. In my writing, drift is important drifting you suspend your sense making faculties you're aware without organizing your awareness you try to exist in a state of openness of receptivity to environment be it geographical or linguistic uh, which is maybe um, without imposing order which is maybe another way of saying you try to exist selflessly with all the aspects of the terrain with any of the words that emerge semantic sense often governs fiction writing what is the story about what does this character want Uh, how and why do events unfold. In fiction, as opposed to poetry, people are by and large more concerned with meaning, with cause and effect, more often invested in writing conventions that make language, insofar as it's possible, a transparent medium, a window onto an extra-literary world. Writers and readers of fiction tend to expect that the threads of plot will tie together by the end, that the guns will go off, that the promises will be fulfilled. Even if we don't make blueprints of our architecture tectonic plots before setting pen to paper, we need to make connections as we go or as we edit. Um, we can uh, constellate images, develop patterns of lyric repetition. In some way, we need to make a shape. It doesn't have to be an arc. It could be a wave, a spiral, a lemniscape. Um, but in some, in some, some shape has to, has to emerge. When I say drift is important, I'm saying Heginian is right. There's a frame or form of intention, and we make the shape and then the writing moves through it. If we allow semantic sense to reign entirely, we might be afraid to follow a phrase where it's pointing, to let its consonantal shell and vocalic inner lining extrude the next phrase, to let, as Fanny Howe says, the words write the words. If we're not comfortable with doubt, we'll most likely abandon projects in frustration incapable of trusting anything we can't see in its fullness. We might exclude from our writing subjects that we don't understand, that terrify and elude us instead of turning toward them. Bewilderment to me is this act of turning, reaching toward what we love, fear, and can't fathom without ever mastering the subject, without ever reaching the end of desire. So, thanks. So, we're going to hear some thoughts from Richard. We have each other.
2: Yeah. Where's mine? So, I'm going to talk about uh, bewilderment as it relates to distraction. I've been thinking about distraction for a long time. At first, as an enemy to generating creative work. Then, as a tool that could be utilized, and finally, as an essential part of my own practice. This thinking gradually became necessary. I am a medical student with a one year old child, and I still claim to be a writer. My own propensity to be distracted by anything that is not sitting in front of my computer screen and writing has become critical in the last few years and it has led me to reevaluate why and how I write. But although it has been my paucity of writing time in the last few years that has necessitated this rethinking, it is a process that started when I was writing my first book, Fabric, six or seven years ago. Um, This was while I was a student in a graduate program where the whole idea was... You were supposed to be thinking about writing first and foremost. That's not really how it shook out. But still, it was a more favorable position that I find myself in now. The first writing I did toward the book fabric before I knew what that book would look like at all was about my great-grandfather who was killed at the Battle of the Somme in 1916. I wanted to write about war. About the fact that at the school I had attended in England, there was a bronze statue of Sir Douglas Haig that we had to walk past every day. This is the general who ordered the attack that led to over a million casualties. We had to take our hands out of our pockets when we walked past the statue. We weren't allowed to talk as we passed it. I didn't know how to even start writing about this. It felt that there was too much coming in from every angle, pulling me in different directions. I could not maintain the focus of the piece, and the more I tried, the more I stalled. There was more here than I could deal with. I hadn't given up when I heard about Doc Ellis, but I wasn't moving forward. I was sitting on the floor in a friend's living room in Portland, Oregon, talking about Tom Clark's book Fan Poems when the subject of Doc Ellis's 1970 no-hitter came up. Tom Clark's book Fan Poems is a book of poems he wrote to his favorite baseball players in the 70s. Uh, I had never heard the story of the pitcher blanking the opposition while reportedly under the influence of LSD. In 1970, Doc Ellis no-hit the Padres whilst high on LSD. And there is some debate about whether this actually happened, but it doesn't really matter. The fact that, like, it was a possible uh, thing that could happen in the universe was enough for me. In the words of Doc himself, I can only remember bits and pieces of the game. I was psyched. I had a feeling of euphoria. I was zeroed in on the catcher's glove, but I didn't hit the glove too much. I remember hitting a couple of batters, and the bases were loaded two or three times. The ball was small sometimes. The ball was large sometimes. Sometimes I saw the catcher. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I tried to stare the hitter down and throw while I was looking at him. I chewed my gum until it turned to powder. That last part became an epigraph for the section of fabric that dealt with the psalm. Why? Because in this story, I found a way I could approach that writing. To maintain an object of focus, but to allow whatever needed to enter the text to enter. To allow these distractions to become part of the text. To warp it if they must, but retain that pinpoint focus. To sway this way. To roll with the punches. I needed to write with the fingertips of one hand still in touch with the focus of the project, but allow the other hand to reach out toward anything. To dwell and create from a space between the project itself and all of its concurrent distractions. A state of interlude. A fluid state. It was not easy to hold that space. It was overwhelming. It was bewildering. But it was the way to write the book I needed to write, and a space I now return to. It is a space of openness, and by that I mean quite simply it is not closed. It is jagged and cuts into the world. It is a space that we cannot maintain full control over, where in fact we must relinquish control of what enters. It is, for better or worse, a state of bewilderment that includes every distraction and is necessary to the text. I wanted to know if I could harness this state in order to enable my writing, so I began to think of it this way. Somebody walks into a quiet room where I am sitting alone. I am startled. And in that state of bewilderment, I make a gesture that confers meaning, but comes from a physiological reflex that I do not have conscious control over. I jump in my seat. I rear back a little maybe, I flinch, and as a result I feel embarrassment that this was my reaction to only an old friend entering a room where I had been sitting quietly. I am ashamed of this nakedness that I cannot clothe in language, this making of meaning I have issued but that I do not hold control over. I am afraid of what might be revealed in this nakedness, this pure meaning. I want to know if it is possible to write this way if we can intentionally distract ourselves into this nakedness, into bewilderment. The solution, I think, or at least the way this initial method is transposed into my wider life, has been to view artistic practice not only as the act of putting pen to paper, not only the explicit act of creation, but all that goes into it at every stage. I say this like I have solved something. Like, I don't have any problems with this anymore, which is uh, about as far from the truth as as could be. But I have often claimed in the past that most of my writing has been thinking, turning things over in my head, walking, allowing language to find itself in relation to these thoughts, which for me has always happened best when my body is in motion. If we can think of the physical act of writing as only an aspect of writing itself, an endpoint of the practice, if you will, an act that closes the practice and in doing so creates an object. The way death is an aspect of life, that in its closing creates new aperture, the absence of bewilderment in the subject, but a transmission of that fruitful or painful bewilderment to the object those who remain. In a literary sense, we pass bewilderment to the reader and we pass it as a gift as we pass life between generations in all its brightness and wonder. That was a pretentious sentence. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) So what does this look like in real life? it means that I will always have a focus in mind. Previously, the Battle of the Somme. For Doc Ellis, the catcher's glove. And I will keep that focus in at least the back of my mind and let my life course around it. So, if I am sitting in a lecture about the renal system, if I am playing in the backyard with my son, if I am choosing avocados at the grocery store or watching sports or reading the internet, I am alert to the potential of all of these apparent distractions to enter the unwritten text. That is, to enter my thinking about how it will arise. Like Jack Kerouac wrote, submissive to everything, open, listening. I try to cultivate entry by this openness, this position in the fluid interlude between the project and all of its otherness. The first step toward that cultivation is to free the name distraction from its negative connotations, to embrace distraction as a garden for the text, and to do so, adopt the holistic practice of writing that rather than focus on the moment of explicit creation, arcs over every aspect of my life. Thank you.):
4: um, We're going to have to have another panel where someone comes out against bewilderment, because we're, we're, all, we're all clearly on its team. Um, in my novel, a woman moves next door to a couple who have lived a secluded life in the country for three years. People who have read the book say often say things to me like, I was sure the husband would have an affair with her. But then I thought the wife would have an affair with her. And then during that one scene, I even thought maybe they'd all get in bed together. I had no idea what direction you were taking it. And sometimes I tell them, sometimes I don't that the reason they had no idea is that I had no idea either, as I wrote. My first thought, the most obvious one, was, yes, maybe the husband and the neighbor would have an affair. And then I thought, well, hell, maybe the wife and the neighbor will have an affair. And then inevitably, huh, maybe all of them should get it on. But then as I wrote my way through the book, other possibilities occurred draped in the illusion of inevitability. So they felt like what I had to write which some were, while some were just pathways to other ideas. And now, still swirling around the final plot between the covers, there are those possibilities that first occurred to me, hints of roads not taken, a kind of palimpsest of my process, arguing against the bullying absolute undeniable fact of what takes place in the book, insisting that what happened to my characters was really just what happened to unfold and not the only story that could have resulted from the situation in which they found themselves at the start. With those of us who write the way I do, making it up as we go along, our bewilderment can leave a trail like this in the work. And that's a very good thing, I now believe. This porous quality, this approachable uncertainty, nooks and crannies in which a reader's own creativity can be engaged without being domineered by the author's authority. For a long time, though, my mantra about what made a good story great, and I don't think I made this formulation up, was that what first surprises must then feel inevitable. I have to say I now disagree so thoroughly with this that it's hard for me even to reconstruct what I thought I meant, though I suppose it had something to do with my understanding that work should not be predictable, but it also had to be plausible, Where I got off track was in confusing plausibility with inevitability, a word that may belong to romantic comedies starring Jennifer Aniston and certain fairy tales, but has no real place in the realm of literary fiction. The job of literary fiction is not to lull us into believing that life has order to it, but to remind us of how great an illusion that is. Simply put, true art is never about knowledge, never about stability, never about the illusion of inevitability. True art, literary art, is unsettled, never complacent, surprising, yes, plausible, yes, but not inevitable. The human experience, this life thing we do, has exactly zero relationship to knowing what will happen next to us, to others. Death, yes, we all know about that one, and it is inevitable. But jokes about taxation aside, death is unique in being inevitable. It holds the copyright on that adjective. And art is our response to that fact. Art is a battle cry against the notion of inevitability, because inevitable, it turns out, is a synonym for dead. So a little messiness in the work of fiction is not a bad thing, not if the author understands why it is there and how it informs the reader's experience of the work. And to make that a little less abstract, if, as a reader, you reach the end of a story and think to yourself, yep, that's pretty much how it had to go, you are unlikely to think much about that story again, which means that the story itself has died. If the very fact of other possibilities and other outcomes has vanished, the story is indeed over, in a way none of us should ever want our stories to be. But still, who wants to feel like a sightless wanderer without a map? The actual answer is I do. For me, that is the ideal writing state. I try to remain ignorant as I write. I try to remember that there are things I haven't thought of yet, possibilities that are in the ether, but not in my brain. I try to forget that I think I know what will happen next as I wander my house saying out loud, what else, what else, what am I not thinking of? With every story I write, I've come to understand there's a version of it lurking that I could know in advance if I let myself. A kind of pre-existing template made up of likelihoods and well-worn expectations and my own tendencies, and I battle against that story hard. But that's me, thousands of pages in, having learned that preconception is not an art form I can execute, that outlines leave me painting by numbers, mechanically filling in scenes, And of course, I come into contact with writers all the time for whom outlines are necessary and seemingly fruitful. Writers who can't imagine writing books without already knowing how they'll end and how they'll get there. And I suppose that is a valid way to write. But I have to confess, as a teacher now, that one of the very most common issues with which I see students struggle is the phenomenon of an idea for a story getting in the way of the story. Often, very, very often, I find myself reading a revised story that seems to want to be about something, maybe something tender like a trust broken between friends, and is pulling toward that in the way stories do pull toward their own fulfillment. But there's a clarinet playing grandfather in every scene, insisting on our attention, pulling the other way. Let me guess, I'll say, that grandfather guy was your original idea for this piece. And the answer is almost always yes. When a second or third draft shows up with some bizarre character or event that seems to have wandered in from another work, even another world, it almost always turns out that that element was the original idea for the piece. And there it is still, vestigial, a kind of security blanket for an author who needs to believe that she was in charge all along, while the story has already wandered off and transformed itself into something the writer never planned. And note, I am not talking here about vestiges of uncertainty, the kind that can make room for a reader to ponder and to remember that life is always, always brimming with possibility. I am talking here about vestiges of certainty, a very different thing. And when they are finally excised, these lingering ideas, it is a joy to watch the stories expand and soar. Which is to say, my teaching life has taught me that this distinction between writers like me who cherish their own ignorance while writing and writers who want to feel certainty about what an unfinished piece will be, is perhaps an illusory divide. Maybe some of us are just more comfortable admitting that it's all a big mystery, while others need the illusion of control to let themselves let go. But in the end, I do believe that most writers eventually understand that for a story to live as we hope, it must take on a life of its own.
3: Um, I think that idea, that sort of old idea of negative capability, this, um, this capability to dwell in uh, uncertainties, doubt, um, I think the reason that he, he talks about that is something that is sort of surprising to encounter. He's talking about Shakespeare in a letter to his brother and saying Shakespeare has this quality um, is because it's really uncomfortable. I mean, I find, I find it, even though I'm very firmly in the like pro-bewilderment camp, I do find that the experience of not knowing what I'm doing and doubting what I'm writing and doubting who I am and what right I have to say anything and, you know, all of that, I find it to be kind of excruciating. But I, but I tell myself that that's actually a good place to be because I think we do need to... To ask ourselves hard questions and to try to stay in our discomfort, because I think we can learn a lot from that. Um, and maybe other people have more uh, pleasant experiences.
4: Well, I I think I probably do, but I would I would break it into because that didn't sound like fun. Mm-hmm. I would it's I not, would not I would break it into two different stages, I guess, and one is unpleasant, which is the kind of. Oh my god, has the well gone dry? I don't know what I'm doing next. I don't, which is kind of the like the overarching career type, you know, what's the next book? What's the next story? I don't know. And that's unpleasant for everybody. I think I can't imagine who's enjoying that. But I actually find that when I'm hooked into a project, the fact of having no idea what I'm doing is pleasurable. It's that that is what creativity feels like to me, and creativity feels good. So, the times when actually writing feels unpleasant have all been times where I was too fixed on knowing what was happening. I mean, those moments when I walk through my house saying, "You know, what else? What else? What am I not thinking of?" That's like a drug. That's exciting. That's fun to me.
2: Uh, Yeah, I I agree with both of you. it, it's absolutely possible. I think it's very uncomfortable for a while. But in that discomfort, there's something really exciting. Because the, what makes it uncomfortable for me is the potential that, uh, that this can go anywhere. And it could go to some really great places and it can go to some terrible places. And because you don't know, and because there is a risk involved, it's exciting. Um, and I think bewilderment to me represents that risk of not knowing. And not knowing is both uncomfortable and exciting.
4: It also is a risk temporally, because you one of the things you don't know is how long is this gonna take. I think that when the, the very few times I've worked from an outline, you can kind of schedule yourself out. You know, you know how long it takes you to write a scene and you know how many scenes you have to go and it's you know, it's not an exact science. But when you really don't know what you're doing and you're making it up as you go along. It's a much greater commitment to an openness that you may never finish, you know or you, or it may just take you on all kinds of roads and it's it's risky, but writing has to be
2: risky, right I think it's very interesting you say that about the, the outlines because it has made me realize the two times I've done that it's killed the projects <laughs> completely because you're just filling in gaps then Did you say, did you say painting by numbers? Paint by numbers. yeah. I mean, that's not fun but, at all. But
4: clearly not true for every writer. I mean, oh, there okay. are people who do use them and like them. I
2: can't. I feel like I told a few of you in the audience here that we, the, about the necessity of making an outline. I'm looking at you, Leah and <laughs> Kelly, especially. And <laughs> sorry about that.
3: I <laughs> I I spend a lot of time um, writing projects where I I have no idea what's coming next and I'm I'm often really just trying to pay attention to the language and look for often a sound pattern or something in it to, to help get me to the next word. But I, I also write, um, I write romance novels that I do outline. Um, and I have I detailed chapter breakdowns to kind of get myself from the beginning to the end so that things kind of happen in the right moment, because romance is a highly conventionalized genre. And I actually find that there is room for improvisation in that, in the moments where
2: even though you've plotted it out, you
3: still don't actually know what sentence is going to bridge a moment. Um, I don't know. There's something. There's something pleasant to me about that kind of structure. That's still. I think it's. It can still allow for. Um, I don't know. For moments of discovery, uh, though. I don't know. It, it, it's a different kind of scaffolding, um, and I don't. I don't do it all the time. I think it. I don't know. Probably some people outline and some and some people don't. Um, I think there's something to be said, kind of, for both, both strategies. As
1: as a practical matter, are there any practices you would suggest to elicit the state of mind which is free of the tyranny of reason? besides Dropping ass. Okay.
2: I thought I was quite clear about this. <laughs>
1: not. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I mean, I think there are all kinds of um, procedures um, that, that you could kind of, in, or constraints that you could invent for yourself, or that you could you could find. Bernadette Mayer has a, a website where she has all sorts of um, writing prompts and, and writing suggestions. Yoko Ono's grapefruit book is pretty good. Um, just write writers and performers and artists who kind of suggest um, sort of strategies, kind of putting yourself into different situations um, writing for an entire day without stopping. I mentioned automatic writing which is a surrealist practice. It actually sort of reminded me a little bit of what Richard was saying about trying to keep one hand you know, writing, focus on the project, and the other hand is out touching everything, because the idea of automatic writing is kind of like this alien hand that's just channeling. And you're just kind of practicing, you're just keeping the pen moving just to see what happens. Um, the derive, which I also mentioned, drifting through an urban landscape, just trying to sort of change change up um, sort of goal-oriented or motivated, habitual Behavior to see what else happens So setting your alarm clock to wake up at four in the morning and write. Um, there are um, the exquisite corpse or if-then statements a surrealist game where you write a sentence and fold it over And then another person writes a sentence, so you just end up with alien language just ways of shaking yourself out of um, You know those well-trodden paths that we we tend to just sort of track onto. to um, no, more, I'm sure. I don't know if you guys have.
2: That was quite a few. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do have a story about um, Constraint, though, which I feel like I've told to at least some of the people in this room before. Um, it's about the writer Joanne Wasserman, who was trying to write a book about her mother's death and was unable to do it whenever she went to write there was too much. It was uh, too much for her to face in writing. So she talked to the poet Tom Clark, who I mentioned in that, um, uh, whatever it was I just read to you, uh, who suggested that she find a constrictive, a uh, constraintive form in which to do this. And uh, she chose the sestina, which is a particularly difficult form to, to kind of fill out. Right. Uh, but what she was able to do was take this kind of uh, deluge of material and fit it into these uh, particular gaps in the form and in doing so, almost distract herself in, into being able to write that, uh, write that content into, into a book Now I'm not saying you have to pick a really, really difficult form and drop your work into it but that is an example of uh, how constraint can be uh, freeing, I suppose yeah, it's interesting, it's like Brian
3: Tightley who is a beloved lighthouse teacher, and he also teaches at the University of, of Denver, um, author of many books, um, books of writing exercises that are really useful on um, the 3 a.m. epiphany and the 4 a.m. breakthrough, but he has a book called The River Gods, and it's, it's very, very similar. It's a, it's a, The book is, is partially a memoir, and one of the scenes that he had to write was the scene of his, his brother's death, and he, similarly, because it was so much and it exceeded his capacity to express it um, as a you know through his own psyche, he invented a, a constraint or he used a constraint, which was to write only using the letters of his brother's name. Um, and so, just I think that there was a line that you said to me once, Richard, Richard about like excessive emotion sometimes requiring a rigidity of form. Maybe it was great. <laughs>
2: yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: we were at Barracudas
2: you were eating eating Mm, a
4: teaching moment
3: for me um, and just sort of thinking about ways that that might also get you to that kind of um, that sort of selflessness um, in in terms of getting sort of beyond yourself and have some other thing mold mold the language uh, into shape
2: Carl's had a question for ages Oh, oh no
1: Well, yes, but um, (laughs) so we have prompts and we have structure and we have restriction, which actually can be freeing. But what is the goal eventually? Like, you know, I can understand that having conscious plans can be can be limiting, can make your work very schematic or cliched, even. Uh, But I find that if I just wander through life randomly, I tend not to write anything. Right, So, I need to have a direction or some place I'm shooting at. It might not be quality or greatness or something, but it needs to be something. Does that make sense? You, uh, so you... what
3: would you suggest? <laughs> uh, you stay, stay tuned for Richard Froud's next book, The Discipline of Distraction. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: I, I think
4: we're, I think we're, well, I think we're conflating a lot of things, which may be part of what underlies that question, because I don't think that any of us, or maybe I'm, well, I won't speak for them, I'm not suggesting um, a kind of bewildered life in which, you know, you don't know if you're ever going to write again, and that's fine, Um for me the bewilderment is more about when I'm in the writing process so I certainly have goals I mean there are books I want to write there are stories I want to write um, but it's just for me I guess what I'm talking about is while writing trying not trying to be stupid about what I'm doing is how I always, usually think of it I don't know if that answers that at all maybe not I mean well, mis-
1: there comes a point eventually where you have to have you don't want to write crap, right? I guess. Or do you? Or maybe it's a, like
4: Not on purpose.
1: <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, but I think this is, I mean, I think what I'm saying anyway is that what I've discovered is that the road to my best work when I'm writing is, I mean, I know I'm writing a novel. And in fact, the novel I wrote had a constraint. There is a disclosure in the first sentence of the book and while I was writing it about something that's going to happen later, and while I was writing it, I made a rule for myself that I could not change the first paragraph of the book because I needed that kind of structural constraint. And the way I described the process was that if I had a kind of intellectual aspect to it to play with, it it freed the creative part of me. So, And when the creative part of me was tired... I had an intellectual challenge, which was how am I going to make this book go back to that first paragraph and not change it? So, you know, that was a trick I used. But I, I don't think that sort of accepting bewilderment as an innate part of art is the same as saying have no ambitions or have no projects or plans
2: right I, I think it's the absolute opposite you have to have the project and plan you have to have the thing that you're that you the eye on the prize as it were but you need to be open to allow things to enter allow the allow things to change as you march towards it i think we're saying a similar thing
4: Sure. So there were places where you had to question your own thinking. Well, for, I mean... Because this is about thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, you know, that's what drafts are for a thing like this. Or the paragraphs that you delete or all that. Um, I think for me, I'm very specifically talking in this about the creation of event in fiction. More than anything else, I mean, when I write nonfiction, and I'm choosing arrangements, that's sort of a different thing. And and a an, uh, you know semi-academic, you know, thought piece is a different thing. I'm coming. I came at this very specifically on the question of what happens in a story. That's really what I'm limited to. So,
2: I think for me, I came at it in the sense of like how is it possible to write these things that I feel unable to write, that I feel are impossible? What are the techniques that I can use to uh, to get toward that? Um, and I think there needs to be that degree of uncertainty and needs to be the degree of, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, but to do it anyway, uh, as long as there's some idea of <laughs> where you would like to get to. Uh, I think the the difficulty is not where do you want to get to, but how are you going to get to it? Um, and I think the openness comes in, in in the how rather than the where.
4: Are there people here who feel that their work benefits from exactly the stuff we're rejecting? Because I'd, I'd be curious about that. <laughs>
2: I think some of it is is the re- rejection of the will to close the piece and the rejection of uh i have to finish this right now or this has to be done this has to be wrapped up and that's like not easy to do um when you've got to a certain point in a piece of writing you want it to be done you want it to be finished because then you can give it to your friends or you can bring it into workshop or you have a deadline and uh I think those things, while they can fuel uh, a creative process, can also be a hindrance to it. Um, so I, I think it was Robin that said about the, the, the temporal uh, issue with this. I would understand that in this way, that if we're working towards a particular time or we're like, this book has to be finished, this, uh, if we have those pressures acting on us, they are something of an enemy to that uncertainty and that, uh, the freedom of that mindset. So it's difficult. Um, I don't know if I have a suggestion to get around that. Maybe don't take any workshops. (laughs) That
1: was a joke. Story and to be ruthless in de- excising what isn't working and growing something new. And so the outline was the constraint, but as long as the story is free to escape the constraint and then honest about when it's doing that, and that's the biggest challenge, admitting.
4: I think that brings up a really important thing, which is, you know, what is the opposition of bewilderment? And it, intuitively, it's sort of knowledge, but I think in the context of writing, it's attachment. Hmm. You know, it's 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 being... It's as if you had taken that outline, sort of known on some level that it wasn't working, but just not wanted to be in that space where you had to admit that you didn't really know what the book was anymore. So I think it's not bewilderment versus... Knowledge, it's bewilderment versus being attached for the purpose of feeling reassured that you know what you're doing and having that backfire, which I see over and over and over again.
3: Ones I was mentioning earlier that might come out of um, a kind of like the Ulipu school, which they believed in creating sort of like machines for generating language, like very um, very rigid constraints, almost mathematical algorithms are getting used to generate stories, but they, they
4: Well, the first thing to know, and I think most fiction writers know this, is that the bar for plausibility in fiction is higher than in fact. So if somebody comes to you and says, I was walking down the street and I just got in a car with a total stranger, you know, your friend tells you this, you have to believe them. If a char- You do believe them, you don't have to, you do. If a character does the same crazy thing you sit in workshop and you say, I didn't believe she would do that. So it's a funny fact about fiction that it has to make more sense than life does. So that's sort of a a starting point, I guess. And, And the other thing I'll say, which is just a related kind of revision hint on plausibility that I use with other people's stuff, is when I find in a student story or a friend's story a point where it says something like, Clara couldn't believe she was doing this, but, 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 ba. <laughs> it's, it's, almost, it's almost always implausible, and what you're really hearing is the author's knowledge of that seeping through. And it's one of those catch things that I go and look for in stories is the points at which the author knew I'm doing something that nobody's going to buy here, and I'm, I'm leaking this. So that's not quite an answer, but it's a little, it's on the subject. I
3: would add that one sort of notion of plausibility that I, I, for me, depends on the work itself. Like, what is plausible within a particular world? I mean, a story about, uh, you know, young sorcerers going to, uh, you know, a school for wizards or what have you, right? There's like a different there's kind of a different bar of plausibility than a sort of realist story about a hardscrabble woman in Kansas who's overcoming a divorce, right? I mean, you're not, you <laughs> start to develop uh, a system where something is plausible or implausible given the demands
4: of the work, right? If it's a work although, work. although psychology is pretty consistent through all of that. So the plausibility of what people would do, you know, what changes is, is it plausible that, you know, Professor McGonagall can turn into a cat. Well, yes, in that book, but not in my book. But, but why people do what they do remains remarkably consistent through different genres.
3: But one, the, the thing that I was just going to say is that I think it comes from Flannery O'Connor, which is may, maybe sort of ties into that. It's this idea that if you are departing from you know, the, the, the naturalistic world that we all know about, where there are these certain psychological norms we're familiar with, um, sort of the higher the flight of fancy, she says, the greater the precision of the writing. You actually need to pay even more attention to what mm-hmm. you're doing. I think because of that bar for fiction generally being
4: so high. Yeah. She also says, Flannery O'Connor, you can do anything as long as you get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I
1: was just from the conversation, reminded of uh, Tolkien with what he does with the Hobbits. In the There's a phrase in there that. The dangerous thing you can do is walk well out the front door, because you don't know where the roads to, to take you. And if you think about the two stories, The Hobbit and The Lord of the
2: Rings, the main character that you follow has a very set, simple life, predictable life, in a world that's very predictable, and then
1: goes out, and then unpredictable.
2: Yeah, I would would agree with that. You definitely got to go out the front door. If you stay inside the whole time, you kind of know what book you're going to write.
4: We probably should take one more if there is one more, but we're
2: I almost feel like we're the wrong people to talk about <laughs> outlines because a lot of people are going to tell you that they, uh, and I don't know where they are, but, uh, I think folks will tell you that the outlines have, have really helped them out. For me, I feel like it is, uh, it's kind of choked the work into, I mean, just what Robin was talking about, the excitement was kind of gone and, uh, it seemed at the time when I made the outline, this is what I need to do in order to complete this, uh, this book. And, uh, but it, it just kind of took the fun out of it. I've had this in my head the whole time, and I don't really know what it means. But don't let the best writing you do for a book be the outline. Yeah. And I think that that's what I did. And then I ruined it. Because, you know, what? Uh, I hear this a lot. People are like, you have a great story. Don't tell anyone. Save it. the telling for the writing. And I think, like, for me, making an outline has been kind of blowing it all on the outline. And then there's nothing left for the actual writing.
4: I think it also has to be said, though, that different brains work differently. I mean, I have, you know, very significant ADD, which comes with its challenges, but also means that the best work I do is kind of unexpected associative thinking. That's what I do. So the one time I wrote a book with an outline... That part of me was stifled and was missing from the work when it came out because that's the part that is where surprise in work comes from in me or where I look back on a particular image or page and think, I don't even know how I thought of that, you know, for better or worse. But that's how my brain works. Other people's brains may need Something completely different. I mean, I have a friend who writes novels and can't does literally doesn't believe that I don't outline. Thinks I'm kind of saying it to be that person, you know, <laughs> and and so it's you know it's everybody. You, you sort of have to know. You know, there isn't a rule for writers. You have to know what works for you. That's simple and complicated.
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.